0: Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Utopian Horizons, a podcast about Utopia's Real and imaginary. This episode is about Bioshock Infinite. Bioshock Infinite is a video game. Wait a minute, please don't turn off. Let me explain why you should keep listening first. I don't know, maybe everyone that listens to this plays video games, but I just thought because the stuff i've been covering so far has mostly been novels like a few films a couple on like real people and parties and stuff there may be people who listen to this podcast who don't play video games and i just wanted to assure those people that you don't have to know anything about video games to listen to this episode we're not going to be talking about like what the shooting feels like in this game or the mechanics of playing it the focus is really the same as it is when i cover an, a novel or a film or whatever we're talking about the kind of utopia uh dystopia that that this game presents to us the themes that it raises the ideology behind it so it's really about the shape of that utopia and and what are the interesting things that we can find in that same as with any other episode so you don't have to know anything about bioshock or video games to get on with this episode so i hope you will stick with it even if you don't know anything about video games perhaps that was completely unnecessary and um, most of you listen to this play video games anyway but i don't know so i just thought i'd put that out there um, joining me to talk about Bioshock Infinite is Mariam Dishkalavite. She is a freelance writer interested in video games, technology and politics. And she also presents a YouTube show about video games and technology for Novarra Media called Left Left Up. Before we get on to the conversation with Mariam, I just want to say thank you very much to Stephen, who's joined the huge ranks of my Patreon subscribers, bringing it to a grand total of four people. That is very much appreciated, Stephen, so thanks for that. And thank you to the uh, other three of you that are very kindly giving me a little bit of cash as well. I'm almost at the point where this podcast is going to not cost me any money. Uh, I'm almost at the point of covering the hosting costs. So if just one or two more of you join those those swelling ranks, then uh, this podcast will break even and won't cost me anything. So that would be great. And indeed, even just the smallest bit of cash, even if you can just chuck a dollar my way, that would be very helpful to help me keep doing this. Uh, Just to give you an idea of the amount of time that that goes into producing this, like this episode, for example, I played through Bioshock Infinite, obviously, which probably took, I don't know, like eight or 10 hours. And then, you know, I had my notes that I had to put together into something coherent. I Obviously, spoke to Maliam, which was, you know, an hour or so. And then I will have edited this by the time you hear it. That is the future for me. But it would already have happened by the time you were doing this. So I don't know how long that would take. But that normally takes me a few hours at least. So... So yeah, it's just one episode and it takes me many, many hours and a lot of effort. So if you can afford to support me and help me keep doing this, you can do that at patreon.com slash utopian horizons. And yeah, that would be great. If you can't afford to do that, as I always say, iTunes reviews would be great. I've hardly had any. I haven't had a review for ages. So if you enjoyed this podcast, if you could just go on there and give me a quick review, that would help to spread the word and, and get more people listening. So that would be cool. One other quick thing, just in case you tend to skip the bit at the end and uh, miss that. And there's a couple of people who like to know what's coming up in future episodes so they can read the book or watch the film, whatever, ahead of time. So just to say, Ghost in the Shell, the original film from 1995, not the remake, will be coming up very soon. And the next Philip K. Dick book I'll be doing in my ongoing Philip K. Dick series is Martian Time Slip. So yeah, just let you know those are coming. So yeah, um, I think that's everything. So on to my conversation with Mariam. So joining me now is Mariam disco She's a video game critic, uh, writes about video games, and also presents a a show called Left Left Up for Navara Media on video games and technology. Thank you very much for joining me, Mariam.
1: Hey, hi. Good to be here.
0: So we are talking today about Bioshock Infinite, I'll just give a bit of context to the game, just in case there's any people listening who don't normally play video games and don't know much about it. So Bioshock Infinite is the third game in the Bioshock series, a series which is, I think, explicitly about Utopia. The first two are set in an underwater Utopia gone bad called Rapture. It's kind of a, it's kind of a world run along the, the lines of Ayn Rand's ideology, run by a, a guy called andrew ryan who's kind of an around an analog this game is loosely connected to that you don't need any prior knowledge of, of the first two games i uh, just thought context might be helpful so this is a, a new setting in characters it's set in a floating city uh, called columbia and you play as a guy called booker dewitt who has an unsavory past and an undefined debt and he has to travel to the city to try and Retrieve a, a girl and bring them back to whoever he owes the debt to, called Elizabeth, who is locked up in a tower by the guy who controls the city, who's called Comstock. And throughout the course of the game, we find out that Elizabeth had some kind of power that allows her to access other realities. That's kind of a brief overview of what Bioshock Infinite is. So I thought we should start talking about the shape of this particular utopia, dystopia, whatever you want to call it. So perhaps you could just give us a brief layout of what kind of place Columbia is, like what kind of world it is, and, and the kind of ideology that underpins it.
1: So, yeah, the city of Columbia was founded by self-proclaimed prophet Zachary Hale Comstock, as you mentioned. And he actually used these connections in Congress to have it built. And it was meant to be part of the World's Columbian Ex- Exposition in 1893. It was meant to be this floating city representing the United States to the rest of the world. So it was actually initially funded by American government. But the ties were severed when Comstock ordered for uh, Colombia to, well, to actually basically take over some of the troops in Boxer Rebellion in Peking. And then American government subsequently just sort of severed all ties. And that's when Comstock's power really sort of took off. And so, again, very usual story, a powerful man uses war to completely take over the space. But the aesthetics of the city just cannot be underplayed there the the amount of like neoclassical architecture and sort of very norman rockwell paintings aesthetic and this the beaming sun that sort of the the religious the religious symbolism uh, all over the the city you know really creates that incredible utopian vision of American exceptionalism.
0: Yeah, it's like quite a nice place to step into at first, like when you first get there, like that beautiful and like you say, beautiful architecture, just shining light, music and stuff.
1: Absolutely. And I think one of the things that will keep on coming back on our conversation is that, you know, although eventually it sort of turns into dystopia, I think it turned into dystopia by purely accidental for purely accidental reasons because it was a utopia for that society, for that white exceptionalist society. You know, we obviously we haven't even mentioned the the big racial yeah, yeah problems in this game, of course. But but really, it has you know it had it had all the potential to be that utopia for the I guess the the white middle classes. And so mm. so again, with all the utopias, you know, whether that's my utopia, no, it isn't. And to me, that's a dystopia. But for them, it was a very fitting life to lead.
0: Mm. yeah as you've uh, hinted there obviously we soon find out that it's not quite as uh, a lovely place as it appears to be uh, this is a place that works along racial lines so black people are a slave class effectively it's not quite as simple as just being black and white people we do yes. have so particularly Irish people so uh, or, or just working class people white working class people so it's not as simple as being just about whites versus blacks absolutely it's a, it is a white supremacist society, but it's also a class-based society. So behind the scenes, we have a whole class of people that are mistreated to make this place work, basically.
1: Absolutely. And that's one of the sort of more attractive themes of the game for me was, what I was thinking about is that there was an attempt to create this, you know, I guess, I suppose, a very racially charged game However, at the end of the day, it was actually class that brought the biggest difference because the rebellion that happened in the end was actually mixed in different races, but it was class that sort of propagated it, right? Yeah. So again, it's sort of just, uh, and, and you see a lot of uh, white people that actually tended to be criminals, perhaps in this utopian society, also to falling into the underbelly. But basically, you know, it whenever anyone tries to create, I guess, a, a racial utopia, class tensions will always be there, some people will be richer than others, and that's when the tension happens, you know? so again, that's, that's something that I thought was interesting.
0: Yeah, certainly interesting. So something we should probably say as well, this um, guy who's in charge of Comstock, uh, important part of his power is is uh, religious power. So this religious symbolism is, is partly that he's um, seen as a prophet. This is, I think, trying to tap into a certain strain of US thought, like that religious conservative Bible belt thing, very patriotic, very religious, very conservative. And he's kind of almost a cult figure. I think so.
1: Absolutely, you know, you, there are posters around the city saying the Prophet Comstock leads his people out of Sodom below. So again, there's the idea of us and them, which needs to happen in any authoritarian society.
0: Hmm. So with this world that presented, with this, as we say, initially appears as a kind of very beautiful place, and as I said, religious, conservative, and so on. Um, we soon find out that it's based on a kind of brutal racist and class-based oppression. So what I just want to ask, what do you think the game's trying to attempt to do there? Is it in some way trying to undercut this particular strain of American thought, or perhaps more broadly like the founding myth of America, the idea of what America is?
1: So I think yes or no. On one hand, we have the whole idea of this ideal America, the image of a lone discoverer, Christopher Columbus, or Zachary Hill Comstock, a solitary individual, who challenged the unknown sea as triumphant Americans contemplated the dangers and promise of their own wilderness frontier. And as a consequence of his vision and audacity, there was now a land free from kings, a vast continent for new beginnings. So evangelical efforts to make America a Christian nation justify the territorial expansion. But on the other hand, of course, history happens and the exploitation of African American population comes to the surface. So we can sort of try and see how, I suppose, Colombia tried to leave the shores of America before the abolition of slavery, but still wanted to benefit from, I guess, from the from the Black labor. But again, even that ship, history happens. So it sort of, it tries to undercut the American founding myth. However, history repeats itself. Now, I think how the game deals with that repetition of history is also very interesting and i think that's when we'll get back to the idea of it actually being a fairly centrist game
0: mm, yeah yeah
1: that's a spoiler yeah.
0: <laughs> one, one of the things i thought was interesting about it was um in terms of like this idea of what america is was like the repeated use of, of facades so i know some people criticized the game at the time for feeling a bit like disney-like like it was like you were into this Disney. but i, I almost felt that. Was deliberate absolutely necessary it feels like fake from the beginning like you're already given a clue that there's something behind this if you know what I mean
1: yes I mean again I think it's not necessarily fake I think the structures are very well built and it is a utopia for those particular people I mean the citizens of Colombia not only do they want this beautiful facade and they do live in it and generations and generations of people do live in it I think there's a certain amount of satisfaction from the feeling that they are the higher class. I don't think they don't think of the, or they don't even know about the black population or like, you know, the abused yeah. populations. I think they know and they love it because they see themselves as, you know, as a higher race. I think that's something that we also see, you know, obviously right now in the United States, it's like, it's not, it's not just the trying to erase other nationalities and other races, it's the satisfaction of being seen as the higher one. That is kind of the problem. So it's not only a facade, I think it's a very real life for that population to be like, yeah, we're better and it's great. And it, again, it's sort of the collapse of Colombia in the end was actually, it was due to all those sort of qu- quantum machinations that that kind of, you know, happened with Elizabeth and everything. But it didn't necessarily have to happen. I think that that world could have continued quite well and Donald Trump had two brain cells rough together I think he could sort of very very well you know recreate that
0: yeah i like the um the first time we see that it's a, a racist society we have this this literal facade like this 2d thing and we see a, a white and black couple emerge from it to be abused by the people watching we also have this this uh, this place called the hall of heroes where they it's kind of like a little theme park telling the story of Colombia's or, or america's various oppressions like wounded knee which is obviously tapping into like the, the genocide that america's founded on the boxer of which you, which you mentioned but also that I like there's bits where so there's for example there's a scene at a, a beach where you see like this beautiful beach that they've recreated in the sky water pouring over the edge you can hear music and people dancing and it's all very nice and then there's employee only Bits and you can literally step behind the beautiful thing that they've created and see how is this maintained. And we literally step into the engine room and we see the working class guy who's complaining like, yeah. "All I want is a fair pay for a hard day's work." And there's a, there's loads of bits like that where there's these, these employee area, employee only areas where you can step behind and basically see what maintains the what maintains this utopia for these people is always exploitation of the people behind the scenes. I quite liked that. Um, aspect of it
1: well actually in a way i mean that's exactly what's happening right now in the world it's just that due to globalization i suppose you know the the, the behind the scenes is in the global south yes yeah, people were in so sadly, we in China don't see and, it that yeah. that yeah exactly so we don't see it as goes by but it's so that is a you know it's a beautiful depiction in that game and it just looks a bit ridiculous but, but because of its proximity but depressingly that's literally what's happening right now sadly and yeah but uh I think you know and i I think the pivotal scene votes for me probably like one of the high points of of this game and and well of of thinking of class relations in in this game and i guess the real life as well and i think yourself you also said that you've noticed this scene was the auction scene do you want to yeah talk a little bit more about that
0: yeah sure this is a within there's a guy called um think who's kind of an industrialist who is in charge of this area it looks a bit like the film metropolis or something with like all the workers like being marched around you know very specific timings and it's you as you're going through it you're hearing constantly anti-union propaganda and uh, it's quite clear he's he's cracking down on workers rights and as you say there's a, there's a scene where you've got workers standing in front of a, of a board like literally busying for jobs as like tank cleaner or graveler or whatever i'm not quite clear exactly what the, the system is like they seem to be do bidding on like the amount of time they could do it in yes
1: precisely so basically it goes like oh you know a plumbing job can you do it in eight minutes and then there are six people and again the mixture is like i think there are two black people and like like four white people or something so again it's not just the racial divide you go like um seven and a half six uh 553 blah, blah blah and it goes lower and lower until like some you know you can't just you can't do it in less than that and then that person gets the job you know, but um again, sadly, this is all happening in real life right now as well. there are there are apps like Fiverr and some others where perhaps you don't bid on on the amount of time, but like you bid on the amount of money you'll get so you just ask for less and less mm-hmm. and it, uh, it it breaks my heart to be fair, a lot of these apps are actually the all the competitors are now mostly in in global South actually, so they bid on the jobs. You know, because for instance, five five dollars will go a long way in India or something, yeah. or like a coding job, right? So it's interesting that that the sort of Western app has been undercut by populations elsewhere. So they're trying to sort of, I guess, profit from that. But yeah, to me that scene, I even I remember I took screenshots at the time that I played it because. That was, to me, was I, I didn't know about those apps at the time. I was like, okay, well, this is the future. that, that And and I can actually envision, I envision this, that, you know, you wake up 7 a.m. At 7.30, you're in your local auction. And, you know, with the gig economy and everything mm. right now, okay, it's all in our apps, you know, but that's pretty much what's happening already.
0: Yeah, I don't think, yeah, certainly I wasn't aware of those apps existing. I don't know how many of them did at the time that this game came out. So it's quite yeah. impressive in that sense. But, yeah, it definitely makes you think of the gig economy. And, yeah, even if you're not Literally bidding in time, like obviously, if you're working in that way on like Uber or something, it encourages you to rush things and put yourself in danger to like get to jobs. Do you know what I mean? So it's still, it's Absolutely. still having, it's still having that effect. And yeah, it's a really interesting scene. I think I liked also within that area, um, as I mentioned, the the propaganda and stuff. He says paid vacations, eight hour days, anarchist words, my friends, and he's like talking about the strikers selling dreams and stuff like that. I thought that was quite effective because paid vacations and stuff like that is is things that we we have now, so him calling like mm-hmm. that anarchist seems kind of ridiculous, but I thought that recontextualizes like the criticism we hear now about workers' rights whenever we hear people talking about workers' rights now. We have people talking about you know this is this is crazy that like you're going too far and you wonder you, you think what those people would be saying in the past when we were when people were talking about oh we should have eight hour days and stuff like this
1: no i think i'm actually quite encouraged as i, I will say in the past year or so i feel like unions are having a comeback especially in tech and 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 in gaming particularly so there was a, a, a survey that was done just in the past couple of weeks that said 56% of game developers want to be unionized. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that's massive for any industry and for, especially for, for one that is so, you know, again, well, first of all, highly paid, but also just, again, precarious, but, you know, unions and gaming, no one really kind of, no one's really talked about it that much and 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 i feel like the new generation of people and games like bioshock definitely helped like i mean millions of people play this game this must have been an incredible sort of push for unions in this game actually because of quotes like this and people understanding that only, yeah, in, and that sort of in the syndicate of the working classes will we have any powers. So, you know, I know what you mean. I'm mean, obviously the right wing press is massively clamping down on unions, you know, and are creating all sorts of policies to try and to sort of negate any, 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 uh, industrial powers. But I feel like uh, with especially with some smaller trade unions, I have to give a shout out to like IWGB and UVW, so United Voices of the World and Independent Workers Union of Great Britain, that in Britain are doing an incredible job and in trying to get young people mm. involved, and so you know creating amazing socials. So I am really encouraged that the new generation of like tech savvy people are actually you know can can recognize now the powers of the unions and and actually the la staff and uber staff they're all unionized and they're going into you know strike action and that sort of stuff so there was the mcdonald's um, one
0: recently as well where they had success as well wasn't there mcdonald's strike
1: yeah so so although again throughout the period of this podcast i think i'll be pointing out just how many things out of that game that look dystopian to us are actually part of our everyday life Mm. But there are uh, some amazing upsides to it as well.
0: Mm. Yeah, I just think it's um, yeah certainly that's positive. I, I, but I just I just like the idea of the game reminding people that things that we take as basic and normal, like paid vacations, that used to be considered anarchist, like dangerous. And I think it's important to always remember that in terms of thinking about utopianism, the stuff. we're Anything we try to do now in terms of improving workers' rights, whether that be shorter working weeks or you know more more holiday or, or whatever it might be, people are always going to try and present that at the time as being ridiculous and you know beyond the pale. I think that's always important to remember that these things that we have now used to be seen the same way, and we can we can potentially have have those things. Um,
1: Absolutely. You
0: know. um, one of the other things in, in terms of you saying you know the amount of things that. Are in this game that seem like a dystopia that we actually is our lived reality one of the things that seems perhaps is coming is Fink pays people in tokens so that he can keep all the effectively he's keeping all his workers like within his own like ecosystem. That just made me think of like Facebook and Google and Amazon and stuff. There's always these stories about them like building housing for their employees and stuff.
1: That's so true, right? Yeah. Yeah. So like there's no life outside of their workplace, right? Anything you need, all your entertainment, all your social life, it's all in the Google offices, right? You don't need to set out step out of this reality mm. it's all in here for you
0: yeah i mean that's obviously that's not quite here yet but i think that's something that could be coming if we do indeed get these companies building like housing for employees presumably it might be like well don't need to pay you like you'll get a place to well you know we'll pay you so much but we can reduce your wages because now you've got this place to live
1: no certainly and actually i think of right i'm thinking of you know the massive foxconn factories in china where all of our you know sort of iphones and a lot of hp and dell and 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 sony gadgets are being manufactured they have their whole villages so you know there'll be like a hundred thousand people working for like a foxconn factory and there will be there you know well together with service staff, I suppose and so they will have their own living quarters there as well ah, okay so that's depressing so yeah. yeah, I guess that's true it's all happening yeah. in real life as is and I mean they will work there for like two years, let's say and they'll say you save up enough money and maybe move to the city or something like that. that's the dream. so you mm. come from like rural China mm. you work at foxconn for a couple of years and perhaps you have enough money to then work in this you know li- live in the city or yeah. something like that
0: I wonder if they're quite isolated places these like Foxconn villages. I wonder if the shops within there are like owned by Foxconn, so the, the wages are literally going back into...
1: Mate, wouldn't be a surprise. I, I, you know, China is, is a vast place. But yeah, that would be fascinating also to see. If it's literally also just like shops as well, then that would be amazing. <laughs> kind, of, kind of reminds me of... I work at Tate Galleries as my day job sometimes, and uh, there's this loyalty program that for every 10 years that you work for the Tate, especially in this in the service, you get £20 voucher. To spend at the shop, (laughs) Tate shop. So literally, there are people that like worked at Tate for like, as you know, visitor assistant, let's say for 40 years. And they then get presented with eighty pound voucher yeah. to spend at Tate shops. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, damn!
0: That's it, putting the money back yeah, yeah. in. Right, yeah. So, um, in this game, are we
1: getting closer to the big moment, the David Batsroy? <laughs> yeah, because yeah. there's like a lot to talk yeah. about. there. <laughs>
0: so, within this game, as we mentioned, this oppressed class of people, um, they do do something about this. There's a group called the the Vox Populi who are. Led by um, a black woman called Daisy Fitzroy. They are a revolutionary group, effectively. So they're organizing and collecting weapons to stage a revolution. So this is a revolution against the, the white supremacist powers. But as we've kind of implied, this is also, it's not exclusively, this isn't like a slave revolt. This is also class revolt so it's it's not just black versus white or something like that it's it's the oppressed classes which are black people and the working class uh revolting so that's something that happens throughout the course of the game There there is a revolt so yeah i wanted to ask you about the way that the game represents the the revolutionary vox populi and whether you think that says something about the game's attitude to radical or leftist movements in general
1: yeah so i mean they've got aesthetics well on point yeah. i will say that having been to many a demo and everything i, I will say that you know yeah definitely the exhibit sort of is framed to look like sort of a typical i guess strong women revolutionary. Um, and then all you know, all the, the sort of the propaganda and the banners that they have, it's it's sort of very much lifted or from I don't know whether that's a civil rights movement or just, you know, just kind of any kind of anti anti-cuts demo that you'll see in London. So yeah. they've definitely nailed that. And I, I think, I mean, Vox Populi is, you know, defi- it has the goal. The goal was to breach that divide between Colombia's privileged few and the rest, erasing the social and racial boundaries imposed by the founders. So to me, that sounds like a like a good, you know, like a good populist movement uh, yeah. against, I guess, I suppose the ruling class. Now how the game then treats that population and sort of turns them into just sort of mindless terrorists. I thought that was, you know, really unfair and we'll definitely expand on that. And and yeah, the sort of, even in the Bioshock Wikipedia page, it says, you know, as idealism turns to bitterness, the Vox simply sought to appropriate all that belonged to their opponents and they show their true colors, driven by vengeance, they destroy entire portions of the city and vandalize the rest, executing anyone standing in their way. Mm. What is really underplayed here, of course, is trauma. And the fact that every brick of that city, every, you know, every decoration of that city, to be fair, I mean, every person, I suppose, Mm. is complicit in, in in the generations of suffering of that population, you know? So, more than I know some sort of mindless vengeance, I'm thinking about this more as a, like a supposed to kind of like Israel Palestine situation, mm-hmm. right? Well, like, I mean, oh, gosh, one can understand why for, for an oppressed population, seeing the signs of the wealth, you know, of the, the oppressors mm-hmm. is something that kind of triggers unpleasant feelings. Like that is not just some sort of mind. Yeah, as I say, kind of mindless mentions that just like and they just want to destroy, mindlessly destroy this these entire portions of the city. No, like the city is is the big sign and the big reason why they were oppressed and people's families died and and everything and so the the game treats these you know the well predominantly black population I suppose but but in general this revolt as 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 you know as this kind of like yeah thoughtless nuisance um Mm. but like i think yeah again just the sort of the idea that these people had to suffer for this long and it's understandable that they cannot see any of it is is really underplayed yeah
0: Yeah, the game completely doesn't deal with that at all it's like even if you accept that a movement like that would necessarily be violent which i don't think is necessarily true but even even if you do accept that but
1: even if it did it's like if even if it wasn't violent like Oh, gosh. I mean, that's where my anarchist side shows up. I mean, like, I understand it. I get it.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. this is the thing. Even even if you're completely against violence as like a political tool, even if you're mm-hmm, against mm-hmm. it, the idea that uh, literal slaves mm-hmm. <laughs> enacting violence against the, their slave owners is the same as the oppression that they've been under is is crazy. And that's exactly what the game does. It, it literally says that these two sides are exactly the same. Absolutely. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't try to deal with the question of... Uh, and let's remember, also, this game does show us that these people are aware of the conditions of their exploitation. As that's where people are talking about um, exploitation of think, how how workers are being exploited. You know, these people are aware of the conditions of their exploitation. So the game doesn't deal with the question of how these people who are, are aware of that, this how it transforms into pure destruction. And, and again, even if it does transform into pure destruction, the idea that slaves fighting against people for their freedom is, is the same as the violence that is, is being used to oppress them. It's really um, disgusting.
1: No, absolutely disgusting. I mean, just to sort of bring in an af- artifact from the actual game, I mean, there's definitely a fixed division into categories of friends and enemies. So um, there are there are sort of adverts around the city that says, friends, the true patriot has nothing to fear from the songbird. Enemies, who are the vox populi? Malcontents who loathe our way of custom. who wa- Who want what you have? free of labor or familial status. So yeah, again, sort of show you know, as you say, the the, the population of Colombia is very much complicit and, and is aware of of what they are subjecting the other, you know, the, the, the underclass to. And yeah, so they are slave owners. And I mean people that are trying to break away from that, I have no problem with
0: <laughs> Yeah. And and it's really uh it's really almost like cartoonish in the way it does it so so Daisy Fitzroy who we mentioned so
1: yeah so let's unpick unpick that particular moment that I think we're going to be talking about right now because I have quite a few quotes from Ken Levine here now where I just don't understand basically so yeah please now if you could just describe that yeah okay well
0: I'll talk about that and then yeah let's hear what Ken Levine by the way directed this this game yes sorry Um, so yeah, Daisy Fitzroy's mentioned. She's she's a, a black woman, so she is oppressed, and she is trying to revolt against that. Which I think um, everybody should be fine with. I mean, that's that seems quite reasonable. So we, ha- so she ha- obviously has a, a legitimate cause, but the game seems very keen to ensure that we don't see that cause as legitimate. So, it, in order to do that, because it, it knows very well that she has a legitimate. Um, grievance it has to transform mm-hmm. it into a monster which it does there's a scene where we see her shoot um think who we've mentioned and rub the blood all over her face I just mean, to make that sure
1: that <laughs> You shoot like the the biggest in, you know industrial capitalist of the city that is like exploiting huge I don't know oh gosh this is this is probably gonna come back to haunt me <laughs> this podcast because I'm all like yeah, yeah this is
0: fine yeah. <laughs> but then she um, yeah so she rubs the blood on her face just to make sure you can see like you know she's crazy and then there's a child there and she says she's gonna kill the it child
1: son by the way think son
0: yeah uh, yeah I think it's a son yeah so she's gonna kill the son and it it feels very much like it's not clear like how she's gone from being like a a revolutionary with a a legitimate grievance to suddenly deciding to kill children and it feels very clear that the game's trying to make sure that you see that she's a monster in order in order to make it in order to make it so that a revolutionary who is a who's a slave is the same as an oppressor they have to find something to do that so they just decide she's going to kill a child and it just feels very strange like it comes out of nowhere and it feels like it's pushing you to like see her as a a monster
1: yes it's this continuation of a myth that only liberal centrist politics uh, you know, where both sides of extremism are to blame. Sort of comes back a little bit from the, uh, you know, from from your question about the idea of America, because it sort of reminds me a lot to about like sort of Hillary Clinton elections, mm-hmm. you know, where she sort of saw, you know, I guess the the both sides of the, the the far right and the far left as as extreme, you know, and and so she was that, you know, that that center that will heal all the wounds, you know, which. No, like her centrism is another type of dictatorship, of course, you know. But coming back, going back to to that scene, uh, yes, so it's, you know, I don't know. Basically, should I reveal a spoiler that uh, have you played the episode two of Burial at Sea?
0: Uh, no, but I'm not going to. Yeah, so go ahead.
1: Yeah, basically, so, um, it is revealed that these events were orchestrated was orchestrated by the Lutest twins. Oh, okay. So they convinced Daisy to take the child to help Elizabeth learn to make hard decisions after revealing that she would not have survived long after the rebellion anyway. But basically, I mean someone called Stephanie Jen- Jennings who is like a games critic very beautifully writes about this. She said she says in this apparent effort to remedy a significant problem in Infinite, the developers have just found another way to further reduce the agency, power, and significance of DAISY and the entire black population of Colombia. In short, it's found another way to be racist. Daisy agrees to this fairly quickly and without resistance. She agrees that Elizabeth's development is more important. Daisy isn't as important. The vex, the Vox populi aren't as important. The liberation of the subjugated people of Colombia isn't as important. Elizabeth and her story are most important. Basically, the reason why, I guess, Daisy agreed is that uh, Elizabeth had to learn, yeah, those, to make those hard decisions. And you actually see after Elizabeth kills Daisy that she turns into, into this, like, much more brutal kind of woman you know that is there to sort of to take on Comstock as we see Mm. you know but um but
0: that's interesting yeah yeah.
1: again so this sort of complete like erasure of the of the black again working class black history and culture because this I suppose the, the monarchs daughter Elizabeth had to survive you know as this 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 white woman you know so again they tried to remedy the situation and just made it even yeah. worse
0: okay that's interesting yeah I didn't know because uh, yeah I think they received a fair amount of criticism at the time so they obviously Absolutely. obviously yeah I bear for anyone who doesn't know burial what was uh yeah dlc that they released a while after the game so presumably yeah. that was the yeah the attempt to try and address that but I think it's it's all ties in to something that I talk about a lot in this podcast, which always relates to utopian, which is this idea of like realism or cynicism versus naivety, where like utopian ideas were always like naive. So Elizabeth is is talking about, uh, there's going to be a re- revolution like in Les Les Miserables, Les Miserables. I can't say it. You know what I'm trying yeah. to say? Um, but it's, um, you can tell at the time that the game's trying to present that as, is naive. And Booker says the, the only difference between Comstock and Fitzroy is the way you spell their names. Um, the, uh, yeah. Elizabeth eventually agrees with that. She says they're just right for each other, aren't they? Fitzroy and Comstock. So I think this game's got, a deep skepticism about radical movements and it, it's, it's it comes back to this idea which we which is talks about a lot at the moment in politics which um you know horseshoe theory this idea that like f- fascists and anti-fascists are actually the same thing like fa- fascists Absolutely. and anti-fascists they they're just as bad as each other and that's yeah. something the game is is clearly trying to do here the idea that a radical leftist movement that's fighting up from oppression, because they're using violence, that means again, as those quotes say, it's literally saying that that's the same as the uh, people who've used violence to keep them oppressed, which is I think that's something we're dealing with with politics at the moment. Like It's a constant source of dialogue. We're constantly hearing that anti-fascists are, are they real fascists? I mean, it's really yeah. crazy from my point of view how people can think that. It makes me think of, um, say, what's his name? Cornel West, that's it. So yeah, it makes me think of um, Cornel West, the, the American black professor was talking about how he was at the protest in Charlottesville. And he had anti-fascists like surrounding a g- group of black people who were helping to protect them from the literal Nazis that were there. Um, and obviously, anti-fascists are often prepared to use violence. That's a, again, you you may agree with that or not, but that's something that they agree to do.
1: Well, it has proven to work. Actually, it has actually proved that you know violence—you may call it whatever—but like it has actually proven to push out the fascism out of the city.
0: Uh, absolutely. But the the idea that those people who are putting themselves at at risk to stop nazis attacking harming potentially killing black people the idea that those two forms of violence are the same using violence to stop nazis and nazis using violence
1: that's liberals are the real problem i'm telling you
0: (laughs) the idea that those two forms of violence are the same is crazy to me again you don't have to agree with violence to see that those two things are are not equivalent so yeah i have a real problem with this (laughs) this horseshoe very thing
1: no absolutely it's just the wrong reading of history you know that's all there is now sort of a bit of a technical point I kind of want to go back to this to the moment of, of Fitzroy's death and everything and read out some uh Levine quotes is that okay yeah sure because I think they will really sort of bring a lot of what we're talking about together and then even bring the conversation further as I even will quote Marx because that's the best I have now I don't know so there was an interview with Ken Levine, and the interviewer asks. So that's to do with the criticism. They so uh, he says, I know there are people, and in some ways you address this in Burial at Sea, who are bothered by what happens to Daisy Fitzroy, the African American Vox Popular leader in Bioshock Infinite. They basically think, if I can use a 2016 metaphor, that you created a game in which Donald Trump founded a xenophobic colony in the sky only to learn that Mexicans really are rapists. And Levine says, here's what I'd say. Bioshock 1 is about Jews. I'm a Jew. If you think about it, Andrew Ryan, Sandy Cohen, Tenenbaum, they're all Jews. So Hong is Korean. During World War II, Korea was beautiful was brutally occupied by Japan. He's the guy who survived. They're all survivors of oppression and they don't come out of it as heroes. Oppression turns them into oppressors and that's the coolest aspect of oppression. If you look at Andrew Ryan and Daisy Fitzroy, they're not that far apart. That's literally what Levine says. To me that's, wow, mm. that's amazing. Maybe people wanted me to write about hero who rose above, above that. Elizabeth is the character I invented who does sacrifice herself to break the cycle. Uh, But I think most people are destroyed by oppression. I could tell a fairy tale about people who who are ennobled by it. But in my experience as a student of history, that's rare. If we pretend there are a lot of happy endings for those stories, in some way it elevates the oppression to something it's not. People also know or suspect that you're liberal, interviewed Seth, and then Levine uh, con- continues, I'm not in this to make people feel good about their political beliefs. If anything, I'm there to mostly challenge my own beliefs. The reason Andrew Ryan is a better character than Comstock is I understood the appeal of Andrew Ryan. I don't get the appeal of Donald Trump's of the world. I don't fear the kings he fears. I understood Ryan better. He was a bourgeois Jew during the Bolshevik revolution. The Bolsheviks came and destroyed his family, destroyed everything in his life. The map, That maps Ayn Rand. She's a refugee who came to America because her family was destroyed by the Bolsheviks. It's not really super surprising she became the person she did. Spider-Man was made by Uncle Ben being shot. Ayn Rand was made by her family being destroyed by the Bolsheviks. I hope if anyone takes anything away from Bioshock, it's about how oppression just goes on and on, how ideology can get very muddy once the real world mixes with it. So... Basically, what Levine is trying to say is that he has this massive fear of utopia, basically because of Bolshevik revolution, which I don't think he knows history that well, because but Russian, you know, but the Bolsheviks took over from the Russian provisional government, which was made out of seven different leftist parties, which was many different strands of socialists, anarchists, and Bolsheviks. And Bolsheviks being the most authoritarian ones. Then after seven months after the, you know, the revolution, basically killed the rest of the party or like send them to Siberia and then became the leaders. But that is because, again, there was the one there was the, the you know, the one more powerful party than the rest. That does not destroy the whole idea of utopia in mm-hmm. my mind. And yeah, I, I do think that his. You know, that that uh, Levine's point of view towards utopia is very liberal. And I'm now going to be, as I say, the guy that quotes Marx, because Marx actually uh, addresses this liberal utopianism in the Communist Manifesto. So Marx and Engels wrote. Uh, the undeveloped state of the class struggle, as well as their own surroundings, causes socialists of this kind to consider themselves far superior to all class antagonisms. They want to improve the condition of every member of society, even that of the most favoured. Hence, they habitually appeal to society at large without distinction of class, nay, by preference to the ruling class. For how can people, when once they understand their system, fail to see it in the best possible plan of the best possible state of society. Hence they reject all political and especially all revolutionary action. They wish to attain their ends by peaceful means and endeavor by small experiments, necessarily doomed to failure and by the force of example to pay to pave their way for the new social gospel. So again, Marx and Engels they reject the sort of the idea of reform. And uh, they use the terms scientific socialism to describe the type of socialism they saw themselves as developing. And according to Engel, socialism was not an accidental discovery of this or that ingenious brain, but the necessary outcome of the struggle between two historically developed classes, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. It, its task was no longer to manufacture a system of society as perfect as possible, but to examine the historical economic succession of events from which these classes and their antagonism had of necessity sprung and to in the economic conditions that's created the means of ending the conflict. So, yeah, and again, so I think Ken Levine is, you know, very sceptical of utopia because he doesn't really, yeah, he, he has, again, that sort of more liberal outlook at at for the possibilities of utopia and he doesn't think class and specifically social relations, which is an interest of mine, as something that, you know, could help in that struggle. That's why he can't imagine a utopia, but I think that's that's a shame.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've you've always answered the next question I was going to ask you. Um, I think you, you've basically said it. I because I was trying to think about like what I think this isn't just about like dystopias. I think the Bioshock, well, this game in particular, and perhaps you could say the Bioshock in general, they are anti-utopian. I think like he, as you say, he has a, a real fear of the idea of utopia, and sometimes we should be afraid of utopia, right? If we have a world like Comstock tries to build that utopia. That is awful. I mean, we should be wary of that. But
1: Well, you see, it's dystopia for us. But for Comstock and his citizens, that was a utopia. So in a way, yeah, sure. the Bioshock is utopian for people that, you know, that hates people of color. They look at that game, they like, they think... Oh, I want to do this. I might do it like this. And actually, Trump could do that. It's just that uh, he sort of chooses not to. Well, not that he chooses not to. He just doesn't have the brain to do that. But um, yeah. but yeah, but basically, I think it is. There's a, there's a sort of a danger that that could happen. And whatever is a dystopia for us, for other people that would play their, that game, you know, that for people with other politics, they they might see this as actual... As, as a hopeful topic, because as I say, I think the the final then collapse and Vox Populi revolution actually was quite incidental, you know, was because, again, Elizabeth had, well, like, had all this relationship with Booker, and they sort of came into that world, whereas really they shouldn't have, and Elizabeth was never meant to be freed, and all of that stuff. So if she wouldn't, if, if Booker and Elizabeth wouldn't really be there, like, I don't think, you know, that Vox Populi would have necessarily even succeeded that easily sure. and it's uh, yeah and again so use just like last can Levine quote but i think it will sort of bring us to, to sort of to the final kind of thoughts about this he says i think that's the problem with utopias so we bring ourselves to it you know we think we're leaving our problems behind but i don't mean this in a cynical way we are the problem like whatever social problems that occur come out of us. It's not like they fall out of the sky. I think people think they're going to go to utopian society. And I think it's not really possible. And this is where my sort of anarchist kicks in. And I say, even with the you know whole idea of fully automated luxury communism, which I adore of course, where I think, you know, automation will will help us, you know, to have that less of a life, you know, I think social relations is something that is uh under under discussed by communists as well i think so um yeah that that really that baggage that that we take with ourselves that is you know trauma and 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 sort of lack of horizontality in all of our relationships that is something that should be really more sort of talked about and i think in that sense utopia is possible
0: Mm -hmm, absolutely um i think for for ken Levine, i think he would be of the or the impression i would get from this game i think the the ideology that this game has there's a idea that it's very scared of anyone with any commitment to fundamental change right it's very like whoa 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 (laughs) don't go too far like I mean racism is bad but I mean come on let's not let's not push the system too much like we have to we have to be very gentle we have to make very small changes which is kind of the um
1: well, yeah, that was the Marxist critique, I suppose, of it all as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of political ideas we've had in, in the West for many for a long time. Like, we have this system. It's the least worst one. So let's not try and change too much. And that is c- collapsing in, in various ways. Um, you know, we're seeing... We're seeing that's not working, we're seeing resurgent right-wings, we're seeing resurgent fascists, we're seeing resurgent left-wing movements to some extent, so I think it's kind of an outdated idea and, from my opinion, a fundamentally wrong idea. But yeah, Um, yeah, I just wanted to, to touch on something that I thought was interesting Sort of Bioshock related, which is just this. Uh, I, I, think, uh, I think I saw it. I think you might have tweeted it or something originally when I saw it. I don't know. But there was, um, there's somebody who's trying to, like this idea of somebody trying to build like a separate world somewhere that Bioshock deals with, whether it be under the sea or in the sky. People are actually trying to do that, which I just thought was kind of crazy, which I came across this project being run by the Seasteading Institute. They're trying to make uh, a floating nation. Yeah, funded by people like Peter Thiel, who's the, the PayPal guy, I think
1: yes and he you know so he gave uh, 1.8 million to Seasteading Institute and 1.25 million to Donald Trump's campaign so yeah it's all very oh, did he? Like, did, he was, close oh like close to like right yeah no Peter way. Thiel is like a massive Trump guy okay. I mean explains a lot yeah. <laughs>
0: Sure. Yeah, so what I want to build, they, they literally, they've got these kind of platforms, like hexagons or squares or something that will float on the sea, and can be like connected together to build like a little city and you can gradually add, you know, more units to it through this tile system. And they're trying to build, they're building it in French Polynesia. Um, but like their ultimate aim
1: they already met up with French Polynesian officials like it's all actually happening it's, yeah. it's crazy I mean they at some point they say they want to also leave the continent yeah and just sort of float by themselves but apparently now because of all the like storms and tornadoes apparently it's a bit difficult to do uh, right. but they are going to be building this thing which is quite uh, significant. yeah that's
0: the important point right because they want to the reason they want to get out into international waters is they want to the phrase so, I, I found a guy who's leading this, uh, Joe Quirk. He said he, he wants to escape bankrupt governments trapped in the 20th century. So, it literally sounds like a Bioshock um, villain. Yeah. Like, yeah. they want to get out of government regulation. And, it's very interesting the so they see themselves as being like they want to escape from like you know governments they want to escape from the system we have but the language they're using sounds very much like he talks about it as a startup nation i mean he talks about the market of competing sea states i mean it's just it's just capitalism <laughs> like i don't it is the idea that he talks about It is is a market and like people have different ideas like it's just capitalism i don't understand why they think they're creating something new
1: that and also a bit of a cult now sort of follow me with that but yesterday i found out about this book uh, written by oh i, I don't think her name emma something but if you just google brotopia breaking up the boys club of silicon valley book it's only out in february 2018 so it's not even out yet but vanity fair wrote like this kind of extensive sort of excerpt from it uh where the author describes the the cult-like sexual relationships orgies that are happening in silicon valley sort of san francisco bay area uh, within like the top tech guys so basically yeah i mean they they use kind of um signal and snapchat sort of uh to 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 do this weekly orgies within you know with some of the mo- like most uh, and this is like fully verified uh some of the most i guess richer most i guess attractive people of the of the Silicon Valley tech and it, a lot of the time the ratio is like one dude to two women obviously there's a lot of sexism and women that work in tech you know they're sort of damned into if they do damned that they don't like if they participate in that then they may not get promoted but if they don't participate then they are being seen as as um you know as boring or whatever and again like they, then they don't get to do the business that sometimes happens in these drug-laced parties but basically it's so massively reminiscent to me of like the 60s hippie movement and like yeah, sort of sure. and then there's a bit of a connection with like charles manson thing going on right with the cult there yeah. and then i'm thinking of this east end institute you know so to me it all sorts of like that like Idea of like sexual liberation and technology and like, but separating themselves from the world, like, the, yeah. like what Manson did oh my god history just keeps on repeating itself yeah. and i mean it it's just sad very, right uh, now that these people actually have a lot of money is what's happening yeah so
0: it so does feel very upset. very silicon valley definitely and it does feel this c-study institute thing is like incredibly naive like <laughs> they have this idea I, that yeah, yeah i just
1: imagine a lot of like sort of bros and kind of like all righty people living there and like i think they're gonna probably massively struggle to get women there
0: <laughs> <But> <laughs> yeah true know. but yeah like they they have this idea that like if it takes on and stuff that it'll be this ideal like free place and like there won't be any oppression because you can just if you don't like it you can like leave and just go to like another island it's like okay so how do you have the resources to like you'll need fuel to move to another island right you'll need like so this idea that like oppression can't arise because you've got in a a world it's an idea that like because capitalism is complete freedom like you can't be oppressed but i mean that completely disregards the question of where resources ends up who has money who has power and then obviously yeah, i
1: wonder how would countries deal with for instance like human rights abuses there or something like that yeah but also i mean now in the time of social media and internet you know like i think people would find out about what's happening in these places a lot easier than people would have found out about what's happening in Colombia. Though I wonder if they would even get internet in that sort of floating island. Yeah,
0: we'll see if it ever comes to be I yeah, don't know yeah, but um gosh. yeah anyway it's been good talking to you about Bioshock Infinite that was good fun
1: no thanks that was that was great for me
0: so if people want to follow Mariam on twitter what's your twitter if people want to follow- so it's
1: at Mariam did uh my name is spelled with the silent jade so it's m-a-r-i-j-a-m-d-i-d
0: and also yeah if-
1: come there for like sort of Politics and games and banter and my own like I know self loathing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and as I said, Mar- Mariam presents uh, Left Left Up from the Media on YouTube as well. So um it's all about gaming and tech. So have a look at that as well. Thank you very much, Mariam.
1: Thank you, Paul.
0: So that's the end of my conversation with Mariam. Hope you've enjoyed it. um One thing I forgot to say in our conversation, I was quite hard on Bioshock Infinite as. Being like an anti utopian thing. I should probably say there is also another side to it to an extent. Um, Elizabeth, the character we mentioned, who has a power to kind of tap into or create other realities. Um, there's a suggestion there that there is a power in imagination and a power in other worlds. Like you literally use Elizabeth's power to bring in things to your world to help you. So there's this idea that alternative worlds, imagining alternative worlds can help us in the world that we live in. Also there's this this theme in the game about uh kind of prophecy and uh overcoming fate. So Elizabeth is prophesied to take over from Comstock and lead a kind of, of battle against the earth and you know, part of the thing that the game about is her trying to find a way out of that and trying to reject the idea of inevitability and find her own way so i guess there is a kind of utopian drive there even though i would stick by my my argument that fundamentally Bioshock infinite is a anti-utopia or anti-utopian i think there is like a also a utopian element in it often you get these kind of contradicting um forces in in popular culture i think which is part of what makes it interesting but anyway yeah i just wanted to to say that um don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you've enjoyed it. If you could, please do me a favour and give me a quick iTunes review. That would be a big help. Um, next episode will either be on Ghost in the Shell, the 1995 film, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, not the new one, or Martian Time Slip, the Philip K. Dick novel. Both coming soon, so uh, yeah, whichever one comes first, the other one will be following soon after. Um, with the Philip K. Dick novels, I said that I'm trying to do it in roughly chronological order, also based just on what books I have to hand. Um, Martian Timeslip came out the same year as two other Philip K. Dick books, I believe, so I don't know which one came out in what order. I'm just going to pick a random order and do them, whatever. I think the other ones are Clans of the Alfane Moon and the Simulacra, so... Yeah, there'll be, but yeah, anyway, Martian Time Slip is the next one. I've got a couple of other things planned coming soon as well, but there's plenty of time for that. So I'll tell you about that in the next episode. Oh, if you've got any thoughts or questions about Ghost in the Shell or Martian Time Slip or anything else you want to contact me about, uh, suggestions for things you'd like to be coming in the podcast, you can email me on utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com or tweet me at utopianhorizons. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll be back very soon with the next episode.